the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated freely. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. Councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Whether we shape the future in the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo. Putting America first. This is The Right Take. How's it going, everybody? Welcome, one and all, to episode number 65 here of The Right Take. I am Eric Lindrum, here with my co-host Jacob Grandstaff, and we are hosting this episode one week before Memorial Day weekend, one of those holidays that kind of serves as a bit of an oasis, if you will, between kind of a dry season of not a lot of holidays before it, not too many holidays after it, but it's a holiday we can all appreciate. But of course, the weekend before it is usually uh, not that exciting, to say the least. It's actually literally an hour ago before Jacob and I started recording here. I was uh, I knew we were going to be recording at about uh, 630 or so. And I went to go get my groceries. I'm like, okay, I've got some more groceries I need to go buy. I'm going to go do this. And the grocery store is maybe about a 15, 20 minute walk away from me. Um, and I had very much a, uh, you are not in Kansas anymore moment because, uh, again, I'm from originally from California. Uh, Jacob, I don't know about you, but the weather here is just absolutely insane. I go into the grocery store, right? And it's, it's sunny skies out a bit of a cl- bit of clouds. And then almost like someone flipped a switch, like a movie transition or something. I go into the grocery store. I'm in the back, you know, get my stuff off the shelves. I'm at the front of the store after checkout, getting ready to leave. And I see a torrential downpour outside, just absolute sideways rain, 
You can see the wind blowing through the streets. There's thunder and lightning crashing overhead. And I'm just like, well, I walked here. I am not going to buy an Uber just to get me home, just to get me all of, you know, 15 minutes home. And I'm not just going to sit around and wait and hope it'll just go away. So I went ahead and I trekked on through it. And I trekked right through that storm all the way home. I nearly got blown over a couple of times. It was unreal. I was lucky that there was some construction actually nearby in the neighborhood where I live. So there was a bunch of scaffolding set up that allowed me to use it almost as a shelter to get home. But um, that was the the highlight of my day. Again, an hour before recording, I got completely soaked. I had to get, I had to dry off. I had to get changed. And I had to make my way to the studio. Fortunately, the weather did clear up just a little bit. So I was ultimately able to make it to the studio with no similar mishaps. Yeah, I had something similar happen to me a couple of years ago when I was over in Southeast D.C. I was on a bike and it was I knew it was cloudy, but I wasn't yet used to this kind of flash flooding. And uh, I got called. It was I was nowhere near. It was late at night. I was nowhere near anywhere where I could take shelter. There were no gas stations open. So I went, I had to go a solid five minutes in that stuff. It's not, it's nasty stuff. I've never seen anywhere in the country that it can go from, you know, like zero to a hundred miles per hour when it comes to rain in this, except in this area. Exactly. Yeah. But even Tornado Alley doesn't have mood swings quite like that. It was just, it was unreal. Fortunately, I like rain, although my backpack got completely sucked. So there was that. Um, fortunately, the, the groceries made it home safe and sound. And that's the important part. But that, of course, is about to be blown away by the new highlight on my weekend, which is going to be recording this episode. Episode number 65. And boy, oh boy, do we have a doozy of a show here for you today. We are going to be talking globalism. And what better hub of globalism than that hive of scum and villainy known as the World Economic Forum. And we will be talking about some very shocking remarks that were made there by none other than the CEO of Pfizer. That is, I had no idea about this, Jacob. So when you told me about this, I'm like, okay, well, what could he possibly said? It couldn't possibly be any worse than what they always say, but it was worse. And we will get to that. But For my topic, again, we're doing the usual. Again, every time that there's a primary, we are going to recap the results of those primaries. But I figure this last primary that just happened, this last Tuesday, was too good to not talk about in greater depth. So last Tuesday's primaries, we had five states. Let's go through the the least important ones from least to greatest. We had, of course, the state of Kentucky. A deep red state, no one was really surprised by the results there. Rand Paul won renomination for his third term in the U.S. Senate with over 86% of the vote. Oregon, this is interesting. Now, of course, Oregon is a deep blue state. No one really cares much about the governor's race there. We all know what's going to happen. But there was one interesting race, which is in the 5th Congressional District. Now, what's so interesting about this? Of course, it's a heavily Democratic seat, so no one's worried about the general election. It's the primary, however. So in that seat is incumbent Representative Kurt Schrader, who is seeking his 8th term in office my goodness and apparently he's of the style of blue dog democrats he's a moderate apparently he is moderate on among other things the issue of abortion and given the current mood of the country right now with the roe v wade news about to be overturned any day now that's basically a cardinal sin for the democratic party and for the left they say there is no room now for any pro-life democrats they did that to a dan lipinski they primaried him out in 2020 and now they're trying to do it to this guy with some woman, a hardcore progressive named Jamie McLeod Skinner, a hyphenated name, because why not? This is important because this race right here is the first primary endorsement of the year 2022 from Joe Biden. Whereas, of course, President Trump has been making endorsements left and right, dozens and dozens, scores of endorsements. This is the first time Biden has waged into a primary fight. 
and he endorsed the incumbent Schrader. And Schrader is also supported by Speaker Pelosi and a handful of others in the Democratic establishment. But the progressive base is supporting McLeod Skinner. I'm just going to call her McLeod. Forget this hyphenated name nonsense. And I don't know what is going on in Oregon that their elections are run like a third world nation. But here we are a week after the primary and only 57% of the results are in. Who knows? I mean, that, that just that's all you need to know about states that have their act together when it comes to election integrity and those that don't. But with 57% of the votes in, she is leading Schrader by 20 points, 60-40. So a lead of over 9,000 votes, almost 10,000 votes. So, again, things could change with that remaining uh, 43% that comes in. Apparently, it is most of those outstanding results are from Schrader's hometown, the home area. But if he loses, this, of course, will be a big deal. It's another incumbent losing renomination. But this will also be a huge blow to Joe Biden's ego, and especially when you look at President Trump's endorsement record, which is almost flawless, even though he's made hundreds of endorsements. Biden's first primary endorsement of the year 2020, 2022, could lose. And would that not be just a certified Biden moment, Jacob? Would that just not be as stereotypical Biden as it could get? His first endorsement, and he loses. Can you, With his luck, can you imagine Biden trying to go gambling? Can you imagine he just gets, you know... Uh, three tomatoes in a row on every slot machine. He goes, you know, he he throws the ball and it lands on black. He rolls the dice. He gets a snake eyes. He has a 20 at the table and he thinks he's good. Dealer flips over a blackjack. Like, this guy's luck is just so bad and I am here for it. I don't know. Schrader seems like a, a decent enough moderate, but if his loss means humiliating Joe Biden, then I am all for it. Well, none of the Democrats are going to want Biden's endorsement come November. None of the incumbents are going to want him to step into their race and try to save them. It doesn't matter how far down there on the polls, if they're down 20 points, him stepping in and trying to endorse them to save them from the Republican will drop them down to 30 points. And they know this, and that's why, but they can't say it out loud because he's technically the leader of their party. So you're going to see this repeat itself over and over again as he tries to get closer to the local races. You're going to start seeing Democrats say stuff like, well, I'm focused on the local issues that people here in our, our district are interested in yep they are gonna run away from biden and the funny thing is again biden can't help but you know i think these are moments where he is being himself because he did endorse the moderate he did not endorse the hardcore progressive although he touts a lot of progressive lines he stuck with the more establishment figure and you're seeing this also uh speaker pelosi and others have endorsed um henry queller the democrat in texas who's also being challenged by a hardcore lefty named jessica cisneros and they're having that runoff election uh this upcoming tuesday in fact uh, the day after this uh, podcast will be posted so we will be keeping a close eye on that one as well uh, next up, we had Idaho. Now, this is one that really slipped under a lot of people's radars, and I don't understand why. But the governor's race there, uh, obviously, Idaho is a very Republican state, one of the reddest, furthest right states in the country. Uh, incumbent governor Brad Little, a Republican, obviously, was seeking reelection, but he was challenged by his number two, Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeechan. And apparently, she's running as more, she ran as more of like a firebrand, hardcore conservative who was endorsed by, among other people, President Trump. But as polling suggested, polling overwhelmingly over the course of the race suggested that this would happen, she got crushed in a landslide. She lost by over 20 points. Uh, Little ultimately got 52.8% to her 32.3%. So that is another clear-cut loss for President Trump's endorsement record, and we will come back to that in just a bit. North Carolina. This is interesting. So, of course, you have the Senate race there. This is one of the most hotly contested Senate seats in the country. Uh, incumbent Senator Richard Burr is retiring. He's a Republican. So the Republicans are hoping to keep the seat red in a state that Trump ultimately did win both times, albeit very narrowly in 2020. Congressman Ted Budd, who was endorsed by Trump, 
ran away with this Senate nomination. He, at first, when Trump endorsed Bud, he was down by double digits against former Governor Pat McCrory, who was more of a moderate establishment rhino guy. But at some point over the last, like, within the last three months or so, the polling just flipped, and Bud ultimately took a double-digit lead. And he ran away with this so much that they called the race, like, seven minutes after the polls closed. He crushed McCrory, 58.6, and McCrory's 24.6%. So a 34 point margin congratulations hopefully future senator bud but and i gotta get your thoughts on like, like 10 points right now with the democrat and, and you think so i mean i the polls i saw well, i mean i mean in current, in current polls today like the what real clear, uh, real clear politics came out with so he's he is the heavy favorite to win oh absolutely yeah 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 yeah. because yeah that's right yeah because apparently the uh the democrat nominee is a uh a former chief justice of the state supreme court named sherry beasley who yeah by all accounts is probably going to lose but I got to get your thought on this, Jacob. A massive upset. I don't know if you saw this coming because I sure didn't. Madison Cawthorn, the very young member of Congress, the youngest member of Congress. He was only 26 years old when he was first elected in 2020, one of the youngest members of Congress in American history. He ended up losing renomination to a state senator by the name of Chuck Edwards, a very narrow margin of less than two points. Uh, Edwards got 33.4% to Cawthorn's 31.9%. We got to talk about this, Jacob, because you and I have talked about this before offline. Um, when I think that among other factors that contributed to this that you will agree with, state parties play a huge role in a lot of state politics. And North Carolina is one of those states where if the party establishment does not like you, they will have their guns on you and will not let up ever until you are gone. They will pursue you like the Terminator and make sure your career is eventually terminated. And uh, I think you would agree that is that played a factor in what happened with Madison Cawthorn here. Yeah, this this actually didn't surprise me. I knew the race was going to be close. I knew, it was, but I had expected Cawthorn to pull it out by about five points. That was my prediction that he would win by about five or six percentage points. But I knew this was going to be a nail biter because going back even to February, whenever he, I think it was in February when he talked about the uh, the cocaine filled orgies in DC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when he did that, all hell broke loose in the GOP, and they responded exactly like a party would respond if they actually had cocaine filled orgies. Not saying they do. I'm just saying their response toward Madison Cawthorn was the response you would expect from a party that actually has that. And they threw everything in the kitchen sink at him. The entire state in the North Carolina GOP came down on him harshly. Tom Tillis stepped in. Senator Tom Tillis stepped into the race and endorsed his opponent and uh, campaign gave money to his opponent, the state senator, I can't remember his name, who ended up beating him. And, uh, I mean, uh, Kevin McCarthy called him out and had a, had a scolding session with him. And then McCarthy came out and said that he said that he was he had exaggerated what he said. Madison Cawthorn then came out and said, no, McCarthy is wrong. I didn't say that I exaggerated what I said. But he, the thing with the cocaine stuff is he never named any names. Right. It's like he threw, he threw this accusation out there, but he never called out anybody. And do I think he, that he just made that up out of thin air? No, I don't think he made that up out of thin air. Do he wouldn't have any reason to. No, exactly. Do I think he exaggerated a little bit? Possibly. I, we don't know. Nobody knows. But what we do know is that the state party went ballistic when he did that. Mm-hmm. And it's so much so, and this is one thing that I noticed that you know how the media is tied in with the parties. The left-wing media is tied in with the DNC. We see this on the right sometimes. The New York Post issued an article shortly after that in which they tried to write a hit piece on Madison Cawthorn. And one of the points that they tried to hit him on is the fact that he was involved in January or supported January 6th. That That's was right. one of the lines that they hit him on, and in fact, they 
emphasize the fact that there was currently a move underway to get him off the ballot. And right. I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, yeah. New York Post is using this as line of attack. So they were. it would, didn't surprise me that he ended up losing. I knew it was going to be close. I thought he would eke out a win, but it, yeah, this isn't really surprising. Yeah, he was the first Republican that they tried, that hardcore leftist activist tried to get removed from the ballot, citing the 14th Amendment uh, insurrection. You know, guilty of insurrection, he can't run for office. They tried. Ultimately, they failed. They tried to do the same thing to Marjorie Taylor Greene, and they also failed there. But yeah, it, this really goes to show that, like, I mean, I'm not even going to bother addressing the whole, like, you know, the, the Coke orgies, whatever. I mean, that, that's... Uh, Obviously, that riled up the QAnon crowd some, something fierce because, of course, they say that, you know, satanic pedophile cabal or whatever. But that ultimately does go to show that whatever he said, whatever he meant by that, whatever he was referring to, this betrayed his youth and relative ignorance of politics. Like, again, he's 26 years old. You can tell he has very much this kind of this frat boy attitude. I, it's kind of surprising he ended up in politics instead of just being a, a more of a social media personality or something. Again, arguably like AOC. But he didn't handle this well politically at all. His first thought wasn't, I was talking with some friends about this, who said, assuming this was real, assuming these orgies or whatever are real, if he were smart about it, he would think, oh, wow, this is happening. I've witnessed it. I need to keep quiet for now, but I need to gather evidence. I need to get, like, irrefutable proof and then drop a bombshell and name names versus this kind of college frat bro mentality of, whoa, dude, I got to tell somebody. So he just dished the dirt on a podcast (laughs) with, as you said, no evidence and no names whatsoever. So that was, in a way, he was kind of his own worst enemy. Because, of course, following this, you saw they, they went all out with the smear campaign. They released this video of him back when he was in college, I guess, with a, a friend of his. And they were joking around and he was mocking, like, humping this guy in bed in a gay way, like, without any clothes on. Like, allegedly as a joke, which, I mean, I don't know. I didn't do, I wouldn't do that in college with any of my friends. I don't know if any of my friends did that. I talked with a buddy of mine who actually uh, went to military school and was like, oh yeah, my roommates and I would do gay stuff like that all the time as a joke because we know none of us are gay. That's just, you know, when you live in close quarters with a bunch of big sweaty dudes for a long enough time, you're going to play around and mess around like that. And I'm like, okay, maybe in certain circles. I don't know. No, that, that is, that is a jock move. Like I can see a bunch of jocks doing that. So that's why that wasn't really surprising when I found out that that happened. It was a little surprised The women's lingerie was a little bit more troubling to me that's right again this this party bro dude getting elected to congress because keep in mind he was not supposed to win this seat back in 2020 if you remember this again this is north carolina's 11th district this was originally held this seat was held by a guy named mark meadows back in the day who resigned he was a freedom caucus guy like hardcore tea partier he resigned from that seat to become the ultimately the final chief of staff of the trump administration in the special election to succeed him meadows himself President Trump and a whole bunch of people endorsed this woman named Linda Bennett, who won the initial primary but failed to make the runoff cutoff. So she had to go to another election with another candidate, the runner up behind her, a 26 year old in a wheelchair named Madison Cawthorn, who then crushed her in the runoff by like double digits. So they very much saw him as a guy who ultimately cut in line and didn't deserve this seat basically and they they never wanted him here to begin with trump obviously ultimately became okay with him and trump endorsed madison cawthorn which that unfortunately adds up another loss so two losses for trump in one night in terms of his primary endorsements but i want to make one more statement on this and then move on i think this is indicative though the stuff that came out about him the the video the, the lingerie stuff this to me is indicative of the inevitable future of our politics as morbid as that may sound when you have increasingly more millennials like AOC and like Madison Cawthorn, and especially once you get to Zoomers. He may be a Zoomer. There's a little bit of disagreement over which generation he may be in. But when you have increasingly more millennials and more Zoomers getting elected to office, generations that literally grew up on the internet, grew up on social media, and especially things like Snapchat, TikTok, and now 
OnlyFans. You got girls who are on OnlyFans right now who I think in 10 years could be running for Congress, and all of that is going to be out there. And the standard mm-hmm. for the, what qualifies as a scandal in America, what, could, what would shock and awe the nation and force someone's resignation in disgrace, that standard will go way down, where members of Congress, male and female alike, again, who grew up on these apps on social media, you know, their horny teenage antics, their nudes will be out there, and they'll just be like, eh, no big deal, I'm still going to stay in this office, I ain't going. Like, I really thought back when the Katie Hill scandal happened, I thought for sure she was going to stick it out and she was going to stay in office, and that would have been the turning point right there, but I guess that, again, that lowering of standards, like I mentioned, came a little too late, or I guess the Katie Hill scandal came a little too early, as did Madison Cawthorn. But we've come so far, just think about this, we've come so far from what used to sink an entire campaign. A little less than 20 years ago, in 2004, Howard Dean's presidential campaign collapsed all because he made a weird scream at a rally. All right, if he were to do that in 2016, he would have won the nomination for it. I mean, the memes would have been legendary. But now this is where we are in our politics, and it's only going to get much worse. And certainly I think the end is not here for Madison Cawthorn. He's not done yet. He's young, obviously. He's probably going to get like his own – he's going to have a podcast. He may – I don't know, join up with some student, uh, conservative student group, like, I don't know, Turning Point USA or something. I don't know. We're not, we haven't seen the last of him. I, I can guarantee you of that. But now we got to move on to the big cheese from Tuesday. The Keystone State, Pennsylvania. Oh boy, oh boy. Who could have seen this coming? That this would be the absolute bloodbath, arguably the biggest bloodbath, battle royale of the 2022 midterms. So we have the governor's race, right, of course, which that was never really, uh, in these final weeks of polling, that was never in contention. State Senator Doug Mastriano, a former uh, Army lieutenant colonel, who's an absolute chad, by the way. As a state senator, he single-handedly led the charge in Pennsylvania to fight voter fraud in the immediate aftermath of the 2020 election. So he was part of Stop the Steel. He was in D.C. on January 6th. He very much was like the figurehead of that kind of kind of like what someone like, uh, I guess, Wendy Rogers in Arizona was or, you know, certain figures who within their state are the leaders of Stop the Steel. He that was him for Pennsylvania. So he was running away with this nomination in the polls. Even though the Pennsylvania GOP clearly don't like him, they think, oh, he's too radical, he'll lose. They convinced a couple of candidates to drop out and endorse the runner-up, a former congressman named Lou Barletta, to try to coalesce and form an anti-Mastriano coalition. All that did, of course, was convince Trump that the right thing to do was endorse Mastriano, so he did that the day before the primary. And on Tuesday, Mastriano crushed the competition. It wasn't even close. He got 44% of the vote. The next highest, Barletta, got 20%. A 24-point margin, which is far greater than the polls expected. The polls had him maybe in, like, the high 20s or mid-30s, somewhere in that range. So he beat all polling expectations. He won this nomination overwhelmingly, and he is going to be the nominee against—this is a perfect contrast. This gubernatorial election right here in Pennsylvania is the perfect contrast when it comes to voter fraud, because you have Mastriano, who was all stop the steal, versus the Democrat, the presumptive frontrunner he ran unopposed— the incumbent attorney general of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, who is a scumbag. He oversaw the the changing of the rules, the mail and all that stuff in Pennsylvania. And he explicitly said on the campaign trial to rally with Biden in Pennsylvania, he said, as the attorney general of Pennsylvania, he said, we are going to win this state for you, you know, Mr. Biden. We are, I'm going to make sure I'm going to use my office. We're going to make sure we win this state for you and we get those votes for you. He said this. He openly said this, that he was going to use his office to win the state for Biden, and ultimately that's what he ended up doing. So you have a guy who is behind all this voter fraud stuff versus a guy who's trying to stop it. So this is going to be a race for the ages. And I will say this too, because again, Pennsylvania has a Republican-led legislature, and that probably will stay the same given the state of the midterms. 
if Mastriano becomes governor, this dude will make Ron DeSantis look like a rhino. I am not kidding. He is going to single-handedly turn Pennsylvania completely red, and it's going to be so good. So, Godspeed, Colonel Mastriano. We really hope you can pull this off and beat that scumbag Shapiro. But, of course, we have the marquee race from Pennsylvania. The Senate primary. Oh, my goodness. Jacob, talk about a down-to-the-wire, bare-knuckles brawl, which is still ongoing. This is probably not going to be determined until early June, they say. These are the kind of political blood sports I personally live for. I don't know about you, but I love this stuff. So, right now, the results stand at Dr. Oz, Dr. Mehmet Oz, in the lead with 31.2% of the vote. Right behind him is former hedge fund manager David McCormick with... 31.1%, a 0.1% difference, roughly 1,100 votes out of over 1.3 million votes cast overall. In third place, you have Kathy Barnett, the the really hardcore grassroots conservative candidate, much further behind with about 24.7%. So there's a few things we got to address and break down here. Uh, First off, polling seems to have gotten it completely wrong in several key ways with this race. So the last few weeks showed that Oz had a narrow lead pretty much the entire time, mostly due to Trump's endorsement. His lead usually no more than two points. With Kathy Barnett in second, now she was way down at single digits for most of this race because she's been running since last year, but the breaking news about the Roe v. Wade decision ended up helping her out because she was already a hardcore pro-life activist. But then at the first debate between the candidates after the Roe v. Wade leak, she announced, apparently previously unknown, that her mother was raped at the age of 11 And she, Kathy Barnett, was the result of that. And she basically said, you know, I'm glad my mother chose life instead of an abortion. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here on the stage running for the Senate right now. So that really that kind of went viral and that catapulted her into second place, narrowly behind Oz. While McCormick, this really establishment guy, you know, former hedge fund manager, a long history of doing business with China internationally, uh, just all around seems like just a very milquetoast candidate by all accounts. He fell way back down into third place and... One poll even from uh, Susquehanna Research, which friends tell me is one of the most accurate pollsters when it comes to uh, Pennsylvania. They had him as low as third place with 11%, a whole 16 points behind Barnett and 17 points behind Oz. So by all accounts, this was going to be very close between Oz and Barnett. So for it to be now somehow this close between Oz and McCormick, McCormick was leading for most of the night until like basically around midnight, Oz finally took the lead and then gradually expanded it. And now the lead's been kind of shrinking a bit. There's about 9,000 outstanding votes. Uh, We don't know, of course, how that's going to go. This is most likely going to go to a recount because the margin between them is less than 0.5%, which is the uh, standard for an automatic recount in the state of Pennsylvania. But there are so many questions here. How did McCormick, with zero momentum in these final weeks, suddenly become this competitive that he might actually pull this off? Where did Barnett's support go? How did McCormick end up doing so well in a lot of rural areas that he ended up winning? I don't know, Jacob. I think something's fishy here, but help me out. What are your thoughts on all this? Um, I don't see what I don't really understand what would be fishy. I mean, he uh, they don't poll him county by county, so we don't really know where McCormick's support came back whenever he was in third place. So, as far as we know, it could be he he was going to do well in the rural areas to begin with. His people just really turned out on election day, whereas it, it, that was being undercounted in the polls. Another theory that I think is actually um, true is in the final days of the campaign, Trump and a lot of other people came out and attacked Kathy Barnett. Trump specifically reported a video claiming that she could not win the general election. And I think a lot of Kathy Barnett supporters broke for McCormick late in the race. 
So if you know if they hadn't really thrown everything at Kathy Barnett, of course Sean Hannity attacked her multiple times on his show. If they hadn't really come after Barnett, you might have seen uh, in Oz thirty five percent, maybe Barnett at thirty percent, and then um, McCormick at maybe twenty eight or twenty nine. So I think that's what happened. I think a lot of uh, Kathy Barnett voters broke from McCormick. Yeah, I have heard this theory that like the the attack ads of obviously prior to Barnett's rise, it was a lot of back and forth between Oz and McCormick because they were the front runners. Then once Barnett came up, they both started attacking Kathy Barnett and all the attack ads, all the negativity, the Hannity stuff. Like you said, he just went full leftist in some of his segments. From what I hear, I haven't seen them, but that's what I've heard he said. Um, well, he attacked her for being Islamophobic, which yes, is interesting. Which, that's from Hannity. <laughs> yeah, of all people, my goodness. And also that apparently she was in D.C. on January 6th, which, again, so was Doug Mastriano, so why should that matter? But either way, that all the negativity convinced people not to vote for Barnett, but a lot of those people were already hardcore against Oz. Because there's been – obviously, this is Trump's most controversial primary endorsement by far. A lot of people really do not like his pick of Dr. Oz. There was some resistance to the J.D. Vance endorsement, of course, but that obviously ended up not working out. He ended up winning in a landslide. But there were people who were just said, we're not picking Oz. We are not going for Oz. And when they saw this stuff about Kathy Barnett, you know, the weird stuff, like apparently she once she supported BLM not too long ago. And I guess circulated. No, 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 no. That's that was completely taken out of context. She hashtagged BLM in a tweet attacking BLM. Oh, she was attacking BLM and she hashtagged BLM so it could get supporters of BLM to read her tweet and find her tweet. Uh-oh. And I think it was Oz that was using it was one of them, Oz or McCormick that was using that hashtag BLM as evidence that she supported BLM. Right, because then there was also stuff going around that apparently she circulated a petition to build a statue of Obama. Like, I mean, I don't know. I haven't looked into that, but that's what I've heard going around. So, I mean, just all kinds of weird things because I I'm Trump's to me, Trump's instincts are right his political instincts are right like 98 percent of the time at least it's very rare for him he'll come out and he'll make these statements you know because he did issue a statement officially on truth social saying that kathy barnett you know she's great i like her i'll support her in the future but she can't win this general election he'll make statements like that all the time about rhinos and never trumpers you know cheney and kinzinger but for him to come out and say that about a hardcore conservative who supports him that's very rare i i was reminded of course and i told you this is what i said to you I was reminded of the last time Trump came out, at least that I can recall, and made that kind of a warning about a conservative candidate in a primary election. And it was way back in 2017 for a fellow by the name of Roy Moore, if you remember that. Trump famously warned before the primary that Moore would not win the general election, and he ended up being right about that. So I was prepared to acknowledge, yeah, Barnett is just an unknown entity at this point. We don't know enough about her background. She's She could potentially be too controversial for the general election, whereas someone like Oz with his name recognition and the Trump endorsement would make more sense in a general. Against, again, this is another race where the Democrat was an unopposed candidate frontrunner. The incumbent lieutenant governor, John Fetterman, who's like apparently eight feet tall, and he's uh, very much a Bernie Sanders acolyte, like a hardcore working class democratic socialist, which in a Rust Belt state like Pennsylvania could actually work out well for him. So we're going to need all the help we can get in that election as well. So we will see what happens in the coming days. Of course, I, I personally, my personal opinion, this is not the opinion of us here together at the right take, but my opinion is I support Oz over McCormick. I would prefer Barnett over McCormick even. I really don't like McCormick. The stuff I've seen about him, again, being in bed with China, basically, being married to someone like Dina Powell, you know, who was former uh, deputy national security advisor, who, from what I have heard, was just a total deep state stooge who did not belong in the Trump administration. You know, if Kellyanne Conway taught us anything, it's you gotta watch who some of these political figures are married to. It could make, it make all the difference. So, I will see what happens. I hope Oz pulls it off. Uh, some other people may think McCormick will fare better. He's apparently supported by a group called Axiom Strategies, which is a, a consulting firm that also helped Glenn Youngkin's victory in Virginia. So some have compared him to Glenn Youngkin and said, oh, a businessman, a moderate. 
But he's supportive of Trump, even though he bashed Trump after January 6th. So some say McCormick would have a better chance than general. We don't know. At the end of the day, keeping that seat red is important. But whether or not that ends up being Oz or McCormick, that remains yet to be seen. Okay, so as we know, there's a shortage in baby formula. This is an issue because back in, I believe it was February, the FDA stopped the sale of a certain brand name of baby formula or a certain plan. I don't remember exactly, but they took a lot of it off the shelves. And as a result, got massive shortage everywhere in the country. But recently, Curb did an article on this eBay vendor, because a lot of eBay vendors, they will have a storefront that they don't actually sell out of, and they sell everything online. There was a, I can't remember the sitcom, but there was one where this guy goes into a store and he wants to buy something. And the guy says, oh, sorry, uh, this is for sale only on eBay. He's like, well, I, I could just give you the money now, and I'll buy and take it home. No, 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 you can't do that. You've got to create an eBay account and go on and buy it online. But I'm standing right here in front of the item. I just want to pick it up and hand you cash and buy it. And the store owner's like, nope, nope, this is only for sale on eBay. Well, you have these things all over the country where people will open up a storage unit or they'll go buy an actual storefront, but they don't sell anything to customers face-to-face. There's this this uh, website called thesellingpoint.biz, and then they'll create a, own separate, their own separate website, but they sell on eBay. This is Molly Osberg. She writes... The sellingpost.biz is an unlikely baby formula vendor. The company's tiny storefront in a suburban Massachusetts mini mall sits next to a barber and across the street from a car wash, promising in neon letters to buy gold and turn your past into cash. Like a lot of eBay consignment shops, the sellingpoint.biz traffics in goods your average suburbanite might have lying around and takes cuts from sales of used handbags or old iPads at auctions off for people too busy or technologically illiterate to navigate the platform themselves. But this month, as the supply of available baby formula in the U.S. dropped to nearly half of what's typically on the shelves, and as the existing black market for the product currently exploded, the sellingpost.biz apparently found a very profitable, if temporary, niche. Over the past week, as federal regulators negotiated with Abbott to reopen a plant partially responsible for the dire formula shortage, the sellingpost.biz spammed local Craigslist sites with offers to buy two dozen types of formula, promising cash for anyone looking to make extra money from formula they had lying around and offering between $6 and $30 per can. But on the company's eBay page, between Ford F-150 dome lights and audio video cables, a single case of Neocate formula is listed at $249.95. The same case costs $167.50 purchased from the Neocate website. But of course, the item is out of stock at the Neocate website. So this company, these individuals, they're going on Craigslist. They're soliciting baby formula from people who have extra. They're paying like $6 for it. They're putting it together, and they're selling it for 10 times the price on eBay. And, of course, their price count. And, of course, the, price, the, uh, the article goes on that they tried to reach the people who run this website, and they hung up on them as soon as they found out that they were journalists. Well, the problem with this is the, the way they're presenting it is that because of the shortage of baby formula, you're going to have all these greedy capitalists who are now going to short? Who are now going to overcharge people for a baby formula? Like they're they're charging almost twice as much as people would normally buy on this company's website. The natural reaction when this happens, or when people are hoarding anything or overselling anything when there's a shortage, is to get the government involved and use the government to make these people stop. If you remember, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a guy in Tennessee who had hoarded masks. He had uh, literally thousands and thousands of masks in the storage unit that he was going to sell for much, much higher for a markup than you could get it ordinarily. Well, the police came in in some kind of Tennessee uh, anti-price uh, gouging law, and they arrested I don't know if they arrested him, but they completely shut him down, and they forced him to give all of those masks away or face charges. In a situation like this, this is why this is where people who don't understand how the market actually works 
really can really hurt people because you have mothers who need baby formula for their kids. Maybe they're not able to produce enough milk themselves. Uh, I don't know, for whatever reason, they have to have baby formula for their baby to survive or at least develop healthily. So for a lot of these babies, they really, really need this baby formula. Well, the only place they can find it is on eBay for $250. Now, that may be a lot of money. They may be cash-strapped. They may be poor. But they need formula so bad that they are willing to pay $250 for that box of baby formula. Now, think about if this the sellingpost.biz had not offered to buy people's extra formula on Craigslist and had not done this. Let's suppose they were really moral capitalists and they decided, you know what, it's not nice to price it to price gouge. We're not going to do this. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to ask for people's extra formula and buy it and then resell it for a profit. What would happen? Uh, you know, what would happen to this formula? Well, it, remember, how did they get it? They got it from people who just had it sitting around. They weren't using it. They were willing to sell it to somebody on Craigslist for six as low as $6. So they obviously didn't value it. The mother who desperately needs the baby formula, she wouldn't be able to get it because it wouldn't be for sale on eBay. It's a simple issue of supply and demand, and they talk about how other sellers are now taking their cues from this shop in Massachusetts, and they're doing the same thing. They're going on Craigslist, they're soliciting baby formula to buy the baby formula, and they're reselling it online. So this is why people who don't really understand the market, a lot of leftists, uh, a lot of socialists, this is where they fall short in understanding why price gouging is such a good thing. Price gouging allows people who need an item, who can't find an item, to find an item. And yes, they have to pay extra for that item, but if they weren't allowed to pay extra for that, that item, that item would not be available for sale. And what this does is it allows other people to get the idea, hey, if this company is able to make such a profit on baby formula, I'll do that in my local area as well. I'll buy up extra baby formula and I'll sell it on eBay. And eventually, as more and more sellers do that, it causes the price point to go down. So instead of, as more becomes available, instead of $250, it'll go down to $220, $210, $200. And eventually, within, who knows, maybe a couple of weeks, that price on eBay is going to drop as low as it would be on the company's website if it weren't out of stock. So this is, once again, another example of how the leftist news media can end up actually costing people's lives. Because you think about if a hurricane strikes and the stores are out of food, someone has food, has extra food that they manage to preserve – and they start selling it for a ridiculous price, people are able to access that food. But then the media comes in and say, well, you're taking advantage of people. So they get the government involved. The government makes them stop. That food now gets distributed to a first on a first-come, first-served basis. And as a result, no one replenishes the food and people starve to death. Whereas if you allow the price gouger to sell at the higher point, you've got, yes, only the richest people in the community are going to be able to afford to buy food. But when other entrepreneurs see how much money this price gouger is making, they're going to swim to get to that island, that flooded out island, and bring food and make sure they can preserve that food. And they're also going to sell food. It's going to increase the quantity of food. So, yes, yeah, so I, th I just found this interesting how it's a, a perfect example of how the media doesn't understand how supply and demand works. And because the media doesn't understand how supply and demand works and our government doesn't understand, this could potentially end up costing people's lives. Well, the media clearly doesn't understand economics in general, and you see this, of course, at the forefront of their mind is politics and you know what's politically convenient or what's beneficial to the left, which is the side they support. Because, again, I mentioned this before. Every time I see reports like from the media saying, well, the economy is booming because wages are going up. People are being paid more than ever before. And I'm like, yeah, that's how inflation works, you idiots. If mm -hmm. inflation is going up and the prices of everything is going up, it makes no difference if your wages also go up because it's all relative. The, the wage, the increase in prices 
cancels out the increase in wages. But of course, they'll run with headlines like, oh, wages are higher than ever before, because they know some people out there who don't understand economics will see that and think it's good. And they'll think, oh, good job, President Biden. But of course, the reality is much darker than that. Because Jacob, you mentioned a while ago, the Biden using the strategic oil reserves seems to have worked or it seemed to work at the time, but now it seems to have completely worn off and that has done nothing now. Gas prices are going back up again. Every state in the nation now has gas for at least $4 a gallon. Every single state, all 50 states. So the economy is not going to get any better. The stocks are down. The Dow Jones had its worst losing streak eight weeks in a row. Worst losing streak since, you ready? 1923. It's going to wow. get really bad. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better, and it's not going to get better for a long time. Well, moving on to other news, it's not often that we actually find some white pills in California. But uh, since most <laughs> – Say that know, again. I, yeah, if you look at the statistics on our uh, our podcast, I think it's like uh, about 40 percent, third to 40 percent of our um, our audience actually comes from California. So I always try to throw in something about – even though we're in Virginia, I try to throw in something about California anytime I can. and. This is actually a piece of good news. I came across this in the Los Angeles Times. This is an opinion piece. Patriarchy strikes again. California can't force companies to put women on boards. Nice. uh, Yeah, this is one of those schemes where, of course, they're trying to use, since they couldn't crush capitalism, since leftists couldn't couldn't end capitalism back during the Cold War, they figured, well, that's all right. We'll just take over capitalism. And once again, they're trying to use capitalism as a weapon to create the kind of society that they want, to create the kind of culture that they want. And um, so this is uh, this is written by some feminist named Robin Apkarian. She writes, this is just like complete dystopian journalism. Like you can't even believe that an adult is writing this. It, she's right. She looks like she's middle age. I don't know how old she is, but she looks like she's middle age. But she's writing like an 18 or 19 year old college feminist. The first line in this op-ed, the patriarchy was not about to take this one sitting down. In 2018, then-Governor Jerry Brown signed a bill into law making it a requirement that all publicly held California corporations put women on their boards of directors. The arithmetic was simple. By the end of 2019, all boards were to have at least one female director. By the end of 2021, boards with six or more directors were to have at least three female directors. So if you only had six directors, you had to fire three of your male directors and hire three women instantly and have it a 50-50 split. Boards with five directors were to have two. Hefty fines would be levied on non-compliant companies. The law has proved to be a stunning success. I could slam you with all kinds of statistics, but suffice it to say that in 2018, the year before it took effect, women held only 15.5% of director seats on the boards of publicly held corporations in California. By 2021, they held 32% of board seats. Today, 99% of companies affected by the law have at least one woman on their board. Some have two or three. But just as California was blazing a trail for the rest of the country, the old guard objected. Right-wing legal groups decried what one called, quote, the woman quota law and argued that it violated the California Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. Nowhere in this article does she refute that. At no point does this woman even attempt to refute that statement. Forget even this law. Yeah, forget forget even the state constitution. That violates the U.S. Constitution that you demand you have – demanding private businesses hire a certain number of X, of women, black people, any other minorities. That's blatantly unconstitutional. Yeah, of course. So they, they don't even attempt to argue that what they propose is constitutional because they don't believe in constitutional government. Of they believe in, No, they believe in um, – what's what's the term? Um, they believe in the mandate of history. They believe that history eventually marches toward the kind of society that they want and that their society, their vision of society will one day become our utopia and you know forget about constitutions. 
She writes, haven't we learned, though, over the course of American history that equal numbers result in equal treatment? No, we haven't exactly learned that. I don't know no, where she's getting no, that. No, definitely not. Unfortunately, Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge Maureen Duffy Lewis, a woman, by the way, who was appointed in 1987 by Republican Governor George Duke Magian. You probably know how to pronounce that more than I do. Duke Magian. Uh, Duke Magian agreed with the law's opponents. So did my colleague Nick Goldberg, who, while lauding the law's goal, wrote last week that he found it too intrusive. And she goes on talking about how a related law of uh, requiring boards of uh, public corporations to increase the number of directors from unrepresent, underrepresented racial and ethnic groups was also tossed by a different Los Angeles judge just last month. And, of course, all throughout the article, she's talking about how we're basically the, their worldview is that as a society, business leaders, enlightened business leaders, enlightened politicians, enlightened civil society groups come together and try to move society forward toward a goal, an end goal, in which women will be treated equally with men. The problem, though, is men actually can't have babies, despite what they may believe and despite what kind of shows Netflix may promote, men actually can't have children. Despite the new emojis that Apple keeps creating. Yes, so as a result, men tend to have more time to devote to capital accumulation and wealth creation. And because of that, they tend to be far more ambitious and, of course, they are going to be the ones who create most of the businesses. They are going to be the ones who sit on most of the boards. And if you create a law like this where you say that you have to put a woman on the board, what's going to happen? They're just going to put a bunch of token females on these boards. They're not. A lot of these women aren't going to contribute anything to the companies. They're not going to actually be put there because of their talents, because of their, you know, their, their ability to bring something to the table. They'll be put there because of a quota. They'll be put there because of affirmative action. And, I mean, how would you like to be one of these women? You get hired, and you understand that the only reason you're there is just so you can fit a quota. State Senator Hannah Beth Jackson is who co-wrote the law with her colleague Tony Atkins, the Senate's president pro tempore. She said, quote, you cannot change the culture by simply asking politely. And she points out that back in 2013, California passed a law in which they essentially requested that corporations include higher numbers of female board members. So it increased from 15.5% to 16.5%. And the thing that Hannah Beth Jackson is pointing out is that when you ask corporations politely to increase their board representation of women, then it increases 1%. If you force them to do it, then it doubles. And she's right. Force always works better than asking politely. You know, I can come and ask you for $100, and uh, you're most likely not going to give it to me. If I pull out a gun, put it to your head, and say, I'm going to kill you if you don't give me $100, you're going to give me the $100. And this is this is what liberals have always believed. They believe that you should first ask politely. If you can't get what you want, then you just force them to do, use the power of the government. And um, uh, the author of this article writes, think of it this way. Jackson suggested... Quote, if you have one woman on a board, the guys expect her to get coffee. If you have two, the women fight over who gets the coffee. But if you have three women on a board, they tell you to get your own damn coffee. Like the, the mentality of feminism is so divorced from reality. And the reason is because just like all of the critical race theorists, their whole worldview is forged in academia. It's not actually forged in the real world. Exactly. Like, not real world experiences. It's all hypotheticals on a piece of paper. Yes, correct. And they, they have – in their feminist worldview, they believe that men are naturally – because all men are misogynistic. All men are going to expect the woman in the room to go be their coffee mate and that if there's two women, then the two women are going to compete with one another over who can get the coffee. When you have an ideology that rejects reality trying to write laws in the real world, 
you're going to end up hurting GDP, you're going to end up hurting productivity, and of course you're going to end up hurting relationships between the people who are affected like this. In this case, it'd be men and women. A lot of men don't get the jobs or they're qualified for because they have to make way for this new quota. But most importantly, it takes away freedom. These businesses, they don't have the freedom to put who they want on their board of directors. They have to you know, stick to a quota. They have to have a certain number of underrepresented minorities, a certain number of women, a certain number of homosexuals, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a, this is a huge white pill by the fact that the courts actually are working. It shows that the system, while it's cracked, it's not completely broken. You know, you put a judge on a court who agrees with a strict construction of the Constitution, he's going to rule accordingly. All right, for our main topic today, we're going to talk a little bit about the World Health Organization. Because back in January, the Biden administration sent American bureaucrats to the WHO with a set of proposals that he wanted the, the WHO to implement for their international health regulations. The international health regulations is a treaty that we entered into back in 2007, which binds the United States to the health regulations that the WHO implements. Now, the WHO, of course, it's uh, almost 200 countries um, every year in May. They come together and they discuss their the regulations they want to adopt, they discuss their agenda, etc. Well, Biden is pushing to strengthen the WHO in the way that it deals with countries who are experiencing health crises. If you remember, President Trump wanted to pull the U.S. out of the WHO in 2020 as a result of its abysmal reaction to COVID-19. That would have been it so was basically good. Shit. Yeah, it was basically just shilling for China. It wasn't trying to hold China accountable at all. In fact, it took China's yeah, – when China came out early in the pandemic and claimed that there was no human-to-human yeah. transmission of COVID-19, the WHO did not challenge them mm-hmm. at all on that. And, of course, uh, Taiwan was, was basically screaming at the top of their lungs that China is making this up. It's not right. And, of course, the world found out very soon that you can transmit COVID human-to-human. Oh, yeah. Well – Trump, of course, obviously wanted to pull out of WHO because they, they weren't useful for anything. Biden wants to reform. Of course, as all good liberals do, they if there's something isn't working right, rather than just scrap it, they want to reform it. And that means strengthen it. So what the Biden administration wants to do is to allow the head of the WHO to declare a health emergency in a country without consulting with that country's leaders. What's interesting is this was, of course, proposed in January. It's, this is when it's representatives of the WHO to propose this. It didn't actually become public knowledge for another three months in the United States. So they're making this – this is what they're pushing. They're not giving the American people the opportunity to look at this and debate whether or not this is a good thing for the country, whether or not this actually aligns with our constitution or national sovereignty. So the WHO, as I speak right now, is currently debating this. So they're having their yearly meeting right now between May 22nd and May 28th. And this episode will be released on May 23rd. So the the window of uh, debate on this issue is completely over. And if they decide to adopt this rule, this becomes the law of the land of the United States. Because, again, we've already ratified the treaty. Two-thirds of the Senate already ratified this treaty. So whatever the WHO decides instantly becomes the law of the land of the United States. Now, several conservatives have been trying to bring this to the attention of the American people. Real Clear Politics ran a commentary on it by Jenny Beth Martin, who's a Tea Party lady. Michelle, the former representative, uh, Michelle Bachman, she went on Steve Bannon's podcast and talked about this, and it blew up pretty big on Facebook. And, of course, this prompted a pushback from PolitiFact. Of course, any time that you see a conservative trying to push back on anything that the, uh, the neoliberal world order tries to push, PolitiFact is, of course, going to step in and offer their two cents and show you why this is misinformation. That's exactly – I talked about that in the last episode when I was doing it by myself because PolitiFact tried to debunk this uh, – 
this video of Biden at a teacher of the year award event at the White House saying like when he famously said to the teachers like these students are, are they're basically like your children when they're in the classroom he said that and of course the Republicans ran away with sharing this video and PolitiFact says oh this is false he didn't actually say that he he used the word like which means that's not really what he meant which I'm just like oh, okay I mean they're not even trying anymore they're just throwing these out there because they know again some people out there will see PolitiFact debunks this and reeks this false and they'll just believe it they'll believe the headline they'll move on so fact checkers really are i think the more i think about it, i hate fact checkers more than almost anything else in the world they're the worst well it's because they're not actual fact checkers they're basically just shills for yeah. the neoliberal world order like that that's basically what their job is to do this is um this is by john greenberg in political and politifact he writes no the u.s is not backing a who takeover of national health policies he writes, a flurry of claims on Facebook and conservative media outlets warn that the World Health Organization is on track to gain enormous powers that would override the health care policies of the individual nation. And he, his argument here is that the WHO does not have the authority to step in and force a nation to do anything. So any, any sensible person, they read this and they say, okay, PolitiFact is disputing this. They're not saying – they're saying that this actually isn't true. So what's the point of updating the regulations? So if Biden actually isn't interested in strengthening the WHO and limiting national sovereignty and giving the WHO more guns, more bullets in its chamber to do what it wants and force countries to comply, what is the point of updating the language? What is the point of proposing these new regulations? And at the very end of this article, he points out that the purpose of this is to add more naming and shaming techniques to the WHO's arsenal. So essentially, here's what happens. The WHO leader... Is something that he considers a pandemic, or not a pandemic, but a, a health emergency. He declares a health emergency in a particular country without consulting that country's president. He basically uh, tells the country, "Now you're going to agree to this, right? You, know, you're, you are going to agree to this." The country says, "No, we, there is no health emergency here." That country then has to try to explain to the world why they're disagreeing with the WHO. And this particular term, naming and shaming, I first encountered this in. Uh, Back in 2017, when I was doing research on George Soros, he involved himself heavily in the 2014 elections. And one of the ways that his NGOs would push certain candidates is they would support policies that named and shamed people who supported xenophobia. So if you didn't want millions and millions of Syrians and Afghans flooding your country of Germany and basically colonizing your country as a politician, these NGOs would all coordinate and quote unquote name and shame you as a racist and the fact that this guy greenberg includes the term naming and shaming in this article at the very end it shows that while he may not have any i don't know his background but he may not have any soros connections whatsoever but it shows that he has been influenced by people who have or at least the people who run uh, open society foundations and this guy they have they they wander in the same circles shall we say like they eat at the same restaurants they talk to the same people. They rub elbows with the same power elite. And this is something that conservatives have to be have to pay attention to is the, the wording used, the language that these people use. They speak their own language, and they signal to each other through this language to show exactly what they want. And naming and shaming is basically exercising soft power to bully a sovereign nation or, a, or an independent politician into doing what you want so Politico actually did an article on this earlier. So this is published on February 24th. This is uh, this is kind of like a newsletter. So it's not something that your average – this is something that no conservative, unless they're in media, would actually read. Like no conservative reads Politico's newsletter unless they're just a complete, absolute nerd. Like I don't even read Politico's newsletter, and I'm a political nerd. 
But they start out talking about uh, WHO making moves on international vaccine passport. And of course, this at this time, you still had Washington, D.C. They were having the vaccine passport. Other cities were. They're pointing out how the WHO is trying to streamline the, the passport so you've got an international vaccine passport that's recognized across borders. And you scroll down past that part, and then they get to the crux of the matter, which is what we're talking about, which is what our main topic is today. Pandemic treaty talks underway. Lloyd Pace, the Assistant Secretary for Global Affairs, the Department of Health and Human Services, is in Geneva meeting with WHO and other global health leaders about a potential treaty to help lay the framework for an international response to the next pandemic, Politico's Aaron Banco writes. It's Pace's first trip, uh, trip to the city as Assistant Secretary. They talk about different backdoor talks. The U.S. has been involved in backdoor discussions with the WHO on the treaty and how to strengthen the organization. The focus of the Biden administration is combating COVID-19 and preparing for the next pandemic, equity. So the Biden administration sent Lloyd Pace and other U.S. bureaucrats over to over to Europe to discuss with the WHO how to increase equity when dealing with the next pandemic. And of course, anyone who has followed this podcast understands that equity is just short for giving the third world extra privileges and mm-hmm. redistributing wealth from in, poor people in rich countries to rich people in poor countries. In the name of diversity. Yes, correct. Pace offered few details about U.S. treaty or amendment proposals to the international health regulations that govern WHO. But during Pace's trip, Politico's Ashley Furlow broke the news, Furlong broke the news that in January, the U.S. sent the WHO an outline of a series of amendments it's proposing for the IHRs. Those amendments would require swift action by countries in the WHO during an emergency and give the WHO greater powers to act during a crisis. The U.S. will hold negotiations with member states on the amendments with the intention of reaching a consensus by May. And, of course, that those discussions are going on right now. Of the IHR amendments, Pace said, quote, We know that we can make improvements to those systems and mechanisms. Otherwise, we wouldn't have found ourselves in the position we have, had, we have been with COVID-19. But the reality is the IHRs, as the international health regulations, are there for a reason. And there are tweaks or other improvements we can make to those existing mechanisms along look, uh, alongside looking towards something longer term, like an international instrument, which will also still be critically important to closing gaps or solving some outstanding problems. Let me read that last sentence again. And there are tweaks or other improvements we can make to those existing mechanisms alongside looking towards something longer term, like an international instrument, which will also still be critically important to closing gaps or solving some outstanding problems. And this mm. is the ambassador that this is Lloyd Pace, whom Joe Biden sent to Geneva to discuss these new regulations that Joe Biden is pressuring the WHO to adopt. So remember Greenberg over at PolitiFact, he's making the argument that all of this is false. This is fear mongering by right wing misinformation people who are arguing that the WHO is now gonna impede our national sovereignty and step on our national sovereignty because it doesn't have any policing power. But Lloyd Pace, who is, went over there to negotiate this stuff, she's claiming that we need greater, we need more international instruments to allow the WHO to exercise its powers. And I assume she's not so, talking about creating an international marching band when she says that. No, of course not. PolitiFact is arguing that the WHO isn't, be given, isn't being given any extra power other than simply to name and shame the people who don't want to comply with the WHO but how many countries do you know of care whether or not the WHO names and shames them? China didn't care. Remember, the WHO actually, even though they're, they didn't want to offend China, they actually did butt heads with China on multiple occasions, especially when they wanted to send investigators over to China to investigate the origins of coronavirus. China flatly refused. They basically said, no, this is our country. You're not going to send any of your people in to take a look. 
we'll do what we want, and there's nothing the WHO could do. We're not going to let so, you see that uh, lab in Wuhan. There's nothing to see there. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So in our worldview, here's the right take on that. So obviously that we agree with the WHO that something should have been done about China's uh, stonewall and the efforts to further investigate um, coronavirus. Because China's position was basically, this is our country. It originated here. We're going to investigate, and then we'll tell you the results of the investigation. And you can choose to, choose to believe in whether you like it or not. We'll investigate ourselves uh, and then convince you that we did nothing wrong. Yeah, so from the right take on this, on a situation like this, is you have sovereign nations. Those sovereign nations get together and put pressure on China economically to comply with uh, investigating a global pandemic. You don't rely on an international body like the WHO to impede a country's national sovereignty because I don't want the WHO violating China's national sovereignty any more than I want WHO violating our sovereignty because if they can step into China and violate their sovereignty, they can do the same thing to us. You know, obviously, we haven't talked about the World Economic Forum much, but the World Economic Forum, the WHO, the United Nations, most of these people, they're not all part of a secret underground cabal that meets in a Masonic temple somewhere underground and decides how to run the world. That's not how it works. They do, however, go to the same universities. They attend the same conferences. They listen to the same speakers. They read the same books. And for the most part, they have kind of the same mentality. They're very secular. Most of them, very few of them are actually genuinely religious. And they genuinely believe that they can use their IQ, their wealth, their power, their prestige, their education to create a better world for the future. And people who oppose their agenda, of course, are a bunch of Neanderthals who simply need to be run over. So this is Albert Borla, who is the CEO of Pfizer. Here's his view of the future of healthcare or the, the world order they want to create. And this is at the World Economic Forum. It is a basically biological chip that it is in the tablet. And once you take the tablet and dissolves into your stomach, sends a signal that you took the tablet. So imagine the applications of that, the compliance, uh, the insurance companies to know that the medicines that patients should take, they do take them. Uh, it is uh, fascinating what happens in, in uh, this field. It's fascinating. It's fascinating what happens when you when the insurance companies can convince people to take a tablet that sends a message directly to the insurance companies that lets them know that they've been compliant and taken the medicine that they were supposed to take. So you think about a situation like this, and this is something that the political article actually points out. This is back in February. They pointed out that the international business community was also sending their input into the WHO because they also want to see it at the table. And they're pointing out, and they're presenting it like this is a good thing. You've got politicians around the world. You've got all these countries around the world. You've got the business community sitting down at the table with all these politicians, all coming together and putting their heads together to come up with the solutions. Well, when you have the world's biggest corporations and their heads sitting down with the world's biggest countries and their leaders and agreeing on the future of global health care and agreeing on how to respond to national emergencies and pandemics and health emergencies, which, by the way, Health emergencies include – the WHO considers health emergencies to be psychological health as well. They consider it to be mental health as well. They could declare gun ownership to be a form of mental illness and declare a national emergency in a situation like that. And if they actually put teeth to something like this, like the ambassador Lloyd Pace to, to the WHO suggested that he wants, then they could potentially override a national uh, nation's sovereignty. And when you have CEOs like this guy Borla of Pfizer, who is believes he believes in complete dystopianism, like he's saying the quiet part out loud, like they, they're not even attempting to hide the fact that they are totalitarian. And the thing is, like it's not even a totalitarianism in the sense like 
like Mao was totalitarian. Like Mao was totalitarian because he was a Marxist, like like a hybrid between a Marxist Chinese nationalist. He wanted power for the sake of power. They're not even authoritarian in, in the fascist in the fascistic sense. Like not even like Mussolini who wanted to become the il duce of Italy and run rule Italy with an iron fist. It's completely different. It's actually more sinister because these people believe they genuinely believe that what they're proposing. Like forcing everyone to take a tablet that sends a message to the insurance companies that they've been compliant in taking their medicine. They believe this is to help people because why wouldn't you want to force people to be compliant if you could actually prolong their lives by a few years? If you got some old grumpy codger who doesn't want to take his medicine, well, if you force him to take his medicine, and you force him to take a tablet and let the insurance company know he's taking the medicine, then he could potentially live long. Which makes these people infinitely more dangerous than just a raw authoritarian who wants to rule his people with an iron fist. So, uh, yes, with something like this, obviously, if even the WHO passes regulations and gives themselves teeth to enforce it, they're not going to be able to force it on a country as big as the United States without American compliance, without the compliance of the American law enforcement, American police, and the American government. With a smaller country, though, they could easily do it because they could say, well, we're just going to withhold funds, we're going to withhold. Uh, you know, resources that you need if you don't do what we want you to do. And a smaller country like Eastern Eastern European country wouldn't be able to say no to something like this. All right. And that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to follow all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. Full list of websites and podcast platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, guys, if you are feeling ever so generous, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.